Time for the children's message. If we have some children who are listening in today, that's wonderful. And so I'm going to ask you, was there a time, maybe, what was it that you had that you really liked and you lost it or misplaced it? Like Pastor Jim always does with his checkbook and his car keys. <laughs> what do you have or what have you had that you really like but you misplaced or lost it? Can you think of some time like that? Mom. Mom loses things and misplaces them. Yep. Phone all the time. Her superpower is leaving her phone in random, unneeded places. Her superpower is leaving her phone in random, unneeded places. You know what? Pastor Jim and your mom would get along real well because I'm so glad I have a landline where I live because I can call myself on the landline and hope that I haven't put the phone on silent and then I can find it. And when I find it, I'm really, really glad. I can tell you a story about something that I thought was lost. And when your phone is on silent, then nothing you can do. When a phone is on silent, all I can do is hope for the best. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So when I was a student out here in California, I had four rescue kitties. But before I moved them out to California, we were living on a farm. And we had a kitty named Evangeline. She was a calico kitty, and she was beautiful, but she kind of had some kitty mental health problems. And every so often, she would run off, and we wouldn't see her for a couple days. And then she'd come back looking pretty rough, and she'd crawl up in the ceiling tiles of the basement of the farm and kind of hide there for four or five days. And then finally she'd come down and start kind of being herself again. That's funny. One time she ran off, and she was gone for weeks. And my friend said, well, probably an owl got her or something else got her, and she's, she's gone. So I was really sad because Evangeline was sort of our special kitty. And um, I pretty much had given up on her. One afternoon, and it happened to be the Feast of St. Francis, I was sitting on the west porch at the farm with the sun beating in, and out of the corner of my eye, I thought I saw a little brown and black and white streak. And I thought, could it be? And I said, Evangeline. And I heard this meow, meow, but I didn't see anything. And I said, Evangeline. And then she came and jumped up in my lap. And I thought, this is amazing. I thought this kitty was dead, but she's back again. And in fact, she'd lived longer than any of our other kitties. And she had a special place in her heart for Pastor Lyle. She really was fond of Pastor Lyle. Not so much me as she got older, but she sure loved Pastor Lyle. And Pastor Lyle had a bigger bicep on his left arm from holding Evangeline while he walked through the house. The last <laughs> years of, his, of her life, she wanted to be either on Pastor Lyle's lap or in his arms all the time. So I was so glad my kitty came back alive, looking a little rough, but alive on the Feast of St. Francis. So in today's lesson, we're going to hear that same theme, some really important things that were lost and then were found, and then the rejoicing that we feel, and the rejoicing even in heaven when that which is dead comes back to life, that which is lost is found. So let's have a word of prayer together, please. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for your son who came to seek and to find the lost. Help us always to come back to ourselves and to him 
whenever we go astray, whenever we are feeling lonely, whenever we are feeling that we are unloved, because we know we are loved with an everlasting love. Amen. Thanks a lot. May grace and peace be with us, the grace to come to ourselves, to who we truly are, and the peace to come home, to where our home truly is. Like all of our gospel lessons, today's gospel lesson has a context that helps us kind of understand what's happening. Before today's reading, except for that little snippet, did you see we have a couple verses and then we jump a bunch of other verses? So in today's reading, Luke tells us that tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear Jesus. And at that time and in that society, that was not a particular recommendation. As they looked on, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. And which is what the Pharisees often seemed to do, wasn't it? I guess if nothing else, it meant the Pharisees were listening and watching, but they didn't like what they heard and they didn't like what they saw. So the Pharisees comment, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Remember at that time, you didn't really dine with anybody who wasn't your social equal. So when Jesus went to dinner with sinners and tax collectors, that was kind of scandalous. And as is so often the case with great teachers, Jesus didn't respond directly to the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes. That would probably have provoked only a useless, futile series of interrogations and responses, somewhat like we've heard in Congress the last week or two. And rather than becoming engaged in a pointless point-to-point -point discussion, Jesus tells a parable. Jesus tells a story. In fact, he tells three parables. First, there's a parable about one sheep going astray, leaving the 99, and then there is great rejoicing when the shepherd finds his lost sheep and brings it home. The next parable is the parable of the lost coin, and there is great rejoicing when the woman who lost the coin is able to find it. Finally, there's the parable that we often know as the parable of the prodigal son, and that's the capstone of this three-part series. It's a series about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. We call this a parable, but really it could be a soap opera. It could be a made-for-TV series. This longest of parables that Jesus tells gives us plenty to think about. So I'm going to ask you to pretend with me that we're watching a made-for-TV series based on the prodigal son parable. And in episode one, we find out there are two sons. And as we say back home, we know right then and there, there's gonna be trouble. The audience in Jesus' time knew about stories of two sons, like Jacob and Esau, Ishmael and Isaac, and even Cain and Abel. Episode two, the younger son comes to the realization that, of course, he's going to get less when this estate is divided. That's a rule that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. So the older son is going to get two-thirds. That's the rule. But the younger son wants his share now. There's no delay of gratification here at all. And commentators differ widely as to whether this was a grave insult to the father when the younger son told him, give me my share of the inheritance. 
one of my professors told me that it was like the son had said to his dad, I wish you were dead. But other commentators say it was no big deal, sort of like if dad was ready to retire from the farm anyway and decided to set up a trust and divide things between the two sons. And as we say back home, you know right there, there's going to be trouble when that happens with the estate. In fact, the father doesn't really just divide what he has. In the Greek, he divides his bios, his life, his substance, what he's worked for, what he's accumulated. Dare we say he's even dividing what he is. I don't know how the father in the story perceived his son's request, but I have to read it through my own framework. And I can just imagine what would have happened if I had said to my folks, give me my portion of the inheritance. I would have gotten my portion all right, but it wouldn't have been an inheritance. Episode three, the younger son takes what dad has given him and he liquidates, he cashes out, because you can't take the farm with you if you're going to a far country. Have you ever been to an estate sale? Have you seen things go up on the auction block that tuck at your heartstrings because you know there's a story behind the stuff? In today's lesson, was Dad watching as things were sold off, converted to cash, made fungible? We don't know. Episode 4. The younger son takes what he has and he heads out of town. He's done with the farm. He's done with the family. He's done with work. He's done with that little lousy community. And he's going to set off for a new place and make up for lost time. Eventually, of course, he is going to learn something that I didn't learn until I was about 35 years old. And that is, you never know what you've always had until you lose it. But that's a teaser. Episode four, the younger son sets off for a far country. Just like a lot of young people in the 60s set out for San Francisco, and even now, young people setting off from small communities, they head for New York or Houston or San Francisco, Denver, Austin. It doesn't really matter where he's going as long as it's far off away from home. Episode 5. He's gotten away as far from home as he can, and he squanders his assets in what the King James Version called riotous living. You can fill in the blanks. This is probably the most watched episode in the whole series because everybody wants to see what he's doing when he squanders all that money and riotous living. Episode six, a severe famine takes place in that far country and he starts to be in need and all he has to eat is humble pie because he has to go and hire himself to one of the citizens of that far country who sends him into the field, imagine that. We're back in the field again, but this time it's worse because he's tending pigs. This is about as low as you can sink. Episode seven, things don't get any better. He's tending to creatures that were ritually unclean in his own tradition. And he's so hungry that he would gladly have filled himself with the pods, probably carob pods, that were intended for the pigs. And since he had cut off all ties with the folks back home, and since his agenda in the far country had been purely self-indulgence, no one gave him anything. Did you catch that line in the parable? No one gave him anything. 
In the language of today, we would say this kid has hit rock bottom. By the way, there's a lot of 12-step stuff in this parable, but that would be a whole adult form series, I think. Episode 7. This is the big one. He came to himself. He came to himself. When I first studied this text in class, I thought that that was some kind of English translation of some other Greek idiom. But the Greek says exactly those words as we say in English, he came to himself. And it's my perception that the self he came to was the self that was in the image of God in which he was created. He came to his true self not the impatient self, not the indulgent self, not the demanding self, not the dissolute self, but the self in which he was created. William Barclay in his venerable old commentary says that in this line, he came to himself. Barclay says, Jesus paid humanity the greatest compliment that has ever been paid because Jesus believed that being away from God prevented people from being truly themselves. That was only possible once they were on their way home. Barclay says, beyond a doubt, Jesus did not believe in total depravity. Maybe Calvin did, maybe Luther did, but Barclay doesn't think Jesus did, and I don't either. He never believed that you could glorify God by denigrating human beings. Jesus believed that we are never essentially ourselves until we come home to God. Back when I was in seminary and we were studying the book of Concord and the formula of Concord, I recalled reading a passage that said, the confessors who wrote these foundational works of Lutheran theology said that underneath the massive and fatal distortion of sin, there was a part of the human being that was created and remained good. Raise your hand if you ever heard that in confirmation. My dad was a good confirmation teacher, but we never got that piece. I spent about five hours this week looking for that source. I couldn't find it. I was sure I remembered it. And in the process of searching, I ran across the book of Concord that my dad had used in seminary. I didn't know I had it out here. It has his pencil notes all over it probably from 1941 or 42, 80 years ago, when he was taking confessions. And I looked up a lot of the passages on original sin, and I found something embedded between paragraphs that were a sentence long and sentences that were a paragraph long, because these are medieval German theologians doing the writing. But here's what I found in the formula of Concord. It said, a distinction must be observed also between our nature as created and preserved by God and original sin, which dwells in the nature. These two must and also can be understood, taught, and believed with their distinctions according to Holy Scripture. The chief articles of our Christian faith urge and compel us to preserve this distinction, to preserve this distinction. For first, in the article of creation, Scripture shows that not only has God before the fall created human nature, but also that since the fall, it is a creature and work of God. Then, 
Having spoken about creation, the confessors go on, like good theologians, to talk about redemption and sanctification, just like what we learned in Confirmation. Scripture shows that not only has God, before the fall, created human nature, but also that since the fall, it is a creature and work of God. What does it mean, then, when you come to yourself? In episode 7, everything changes when first he comes home to himself. Episode 8, because he is now in contact with himself, his real self, instead of his false self, his acquisitive self, his self-indulgent self, his judgmental self, then there's a lot of internal dialogue. We all talk to ourselves, and this young man needs to have an extended dialogue with himself. He needs to think about how he's been thinking about things. And so his internal dialogue says, wow, even dad's day laborers, whom he can fire like that when he wants to, they have enough to eat and more, and I'm here dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father. I will get up and go to my father. And then the young man rehearses his opening statements to Dad. He says, Dad, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven. I'm not even worth being called your son. Just treat me like one of your hired hands. And the kid sets off, turning around from that far country, turning from that to begin the long journey home. New thoughts lead to new actions. Episode 9. The younger son has made the long journey over dusty roads, eating and drinking whatever he can, barefoot and probably in rags, stinking rags, because he's been hanging out with the pigs. And as in the far distance, home comes into view a long ways off, the father sees him, and the father is filled with compassion, and that Greek word implies a visceral sense of overwhelming emotion. And the father, forgetting any appearances of dignity, the father runs to this younger son. I always make the point to myself, the father didn't run after the son, but now he runs to him. And the son isn't even able to finish his entire speech, did you notice, before the father of the household says, quick, quick, bring out a robe, the best one and put it on, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, prepare our best livestock and we're going to eat and celebrate because this son of mine, this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And if you're watching the series, we can bring up the music of celebration, the laughter and the joy. So it would be lovely if this were the end of our made-for-TV series. But there's more. Episode 10. Our gaze moves away from the house and the celebration out into the open field. There is the elder son. Remember him? He stayed home, working, all this time. On this day, he's also out in the field. He's been working in the field that day quite some time, obviously, because when he approaches the house, he hears music and dancing already. It's already going on. 
He has no idea why. So he calls to one of the workers and asks what's going on. Can't you hear it? He's thinking, nobody ever tells me anything here. And when the older son finds out why there is celebration, music, and dancing, I dare say, as we say in psychology, he is triggered, like stepping on the emotional landmine. He's probably absolutely enraged. Can you imagine his internal dialogue? I worked like a fool my whole life. I never took off and went anywhere. I never demanded one thing from my folks. All these years, I've never gone against their wishes. And what good has it done me? Apparently, someone asks him to come into the house, but he refuses. So, Dad comes out of the house. And our lesson says that Dad begins to plead with him. But actually, the word for pleading could also be translated as Dad comes out of the house to comfort him. It's the same word that where Jesus says, I will send you the comforter. And I kind of like that image, like a father would comfort his upset child, even if that child is 49 years old. Dad comes out to try to comfort this dutiful, cranky son. But the son answers, look it, I've worked like a slave for you. I've done everything you've ever said, and you never so much as gave me a lousy goat for a barbecue with my friends. But this son of yours, this son of yours, comes back, who devoured your property with prostitutes, and you're given a party for him. Then the father says, actually not son in the Greek, the father says, child, child, you are always with me. Isn't that an interesting response? What does that mean? Child, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours, but we had to rejoice and celebrate because this brother of yours, this brother of yours, was dead and has come to life. He was lost and he's found. We really don't know how the story ends, but I like to think at the end of episode 10, if we were watching the show on TV, the credits would roll up and the oboe solo begins to play from Dvorak's New World Symphony, the one that has the words to it called Going Home. And the older son, who's been physically present but emotionally absent, looks in his dad's eyes. And the older son comes to himself. Dad puts his hand on the shoulder of his older son, and they walk in the house together. That's how I'd like to think. It ends. Now, even though our made-for-TV series has followed the younger son, the real star, the real star of this series is Dad. One commentator says, Lost running children need the compassionate grace of the Father. And please don't let the gender specificity get in the way of the point. Once we come to ourselves, the Father is eager and ready to receive us. This is how we should picture God. When we leave, God lets us go. It inevitably happens to all of us. We go and miss the mark. 
And God knows that if we will come back and find God's grace, we will be wonderfully blessed. And when we come, God rushes out to meet us. There is no, ah, but first you must do this, or, oh, but first you have to prove yourself, or, first you must be severely punished. No, there is rejoicing and laughing and dancing in heaven. God experiences the abandonment of unbridled joy. Why? Because his son or his daughter, the one who was lost, now is found. Helmut Thielicke was one of my dad's favorite theologians, and he wrote an entire book called The Waiting Father. And Thielicke says this, it's so helpful. Thielicke says, this is Jesus Christ himself who is speaking, and he is not merely telling us about this father. The father himself is in him. He is not merely imagining a picture of an alleged heaven that is open to sinners. In him... The kingdom is actually in the midst of us now. Does he not eat with sinners? Does he not seek out that which is lost? Is he not with us when we die and leave all others behind? Is he not the light that shines into the darkness? Is he not the very voice of the Father's heart that overtakes us in a far country and tells us that incredibly joyful news you can come home come home this lenten season is one of repentance of turning around of changing your mind of coming to yourself your true self and coming home I haven't read much of the work of Friedrich Brichner, but I have a good friend, Dave, who has. And in discussing this text with David, he shared a quote from Brichner that is beautiful. Brichner said, to repent is to come to your senses. It is not so much something you do as something that happens. True repentance spends less time looking at the past and saying, I'm sorry, than looking to the future and saying, wow. Wow. As the hymn verse says, we are lost in wonder, love, and grace. Grace, something that has been given to us, not something that is due us not that one-third of the estate, and we're lost in gratitude as a response to what have been, has been given to us, not to what we have earned or to what is to us. So may grace and peace be with us, the grace to come to ourselves, to who we truly are, to whose we truly are, and the peace to come home to where our home truly is.